Okay, welcome back, everybody. Howdy doody. This is uh, Intername here. And I am Chris. Yeah. And hey. I'm Zach. <laughs> and you're back with Octoberthon. Octoberthon. Yes. Yeah, uh, creepy, spooky Octoberthon. Yeah, we're trying to, you know, keep a theme for the month, I guess. Yeah. So, um, so far, we're doing it. With good our job. mini themes for each episode. So, yeah. Uh, thanks for coming back. We appreciate you. We always do. We like to see that y'all are back into listening maybe because the weather's getting a little cooler yeah it seems like people have been excited to listen to us so thanks everybody yeah the the numbers are going up faster than i think they've ever gone up so yeah keep up keep it up and we will keep it up and some angry emails would be good yes you guys are only about nice. chris so as you know only about chris <laughs> yeah, who even if it is about me who most certainly cheated based on our uh one of our more recent uh, poll I questions. think the only options were basically yes, he cheated. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> so, pretty yeah. much, yeah. But you know, thanks for the very honest. Uh, <clears throat> but we are tied two to two in the trivia, so yeah, I did not cheat very well. The, the options were: is Chris cheating? Yes, certainly, absolutely, no question, and yes again. <laughs> uh, There's a split in votes between uh, <clears throat> yes again and certainly. <laughs> So, like I've said, you're cheating. Funny that people would choose yes again. <laughs> Maybe they were just saying it's constant. You never know. Yeah, whatever, you guys. Um, so, you know, follow us on socials the, the, besides the, you know, the scary X one. Um, oh, yeah, we're not on that one. No. Uh, we are on Instagram at Intername Here Podcast we and are. Facebook Intername Here and I know the email address. Yeah. It's internamehearepodcast at gmail.com. Good. Chris actually <laughs> writes that on his hand for every episode. So. I have to. I have to. I'm pretty much assured that I'm not going to remember the others. So, you know, right. my brain just won't do it now. It's smoothed over. <laughs> there you go. Smooth brain, smooth brain Chris. Yeah, that's what they called me in high school. Um, last week we brought up uh, the Fat Bear Week voting that came up oh, we did and uh the winner has been announced of fat bear week yeah i had that up on my phone all right yeah. it's uh <laughs> female bruin 128 grazer was named the winner yeah picture it, this thing too big fat bear that's yeah, a big fat bear uh the national uh, national park service announced that uh her combination of skill and toughness earned her the top spot in cat i think it's cat Oh. National Park. Uh, the bear was is dubbed 128 Grazer, beat 11 other bears in the annual contest, and it allows members of the public to vote for their favorite rotund bears at the Alaska Park. <laughs> I mean, it's a big old fat bear. They say she was uh, good at fishing, too. Like, she had tactics and stuff. Like, and yeah. She would chase them, <laughs> like, downstream or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this was a first-time champion. Actually, some of these bears have won several times. And won the final round of voting against 32 Chunk, <laughs> described as a mountain of a male with a prominent posterior. So, uh, though she may be blissfully unaware of her new title in this imaginary competition, her success is real. Um, in the bear world, fat equals success, and all bears have been working endlessly to pack on the pounds needed to survive winter hibernation. Yeah, coming it's, up. It's a competition where all the contenders are winners. So, you know, they all get participation trophies that they don't know about so congrats to uh 128 grazer are the numbers uh referring to how many contestants no i think that that's just their like tracking numbers yeah. it's probably that's probably their tracking number and then they give them the another name because the other one's named what was it 
32 chunk. Chunk. <laughs> so, right. I mean, it could have something to do with age. I'm not exactly sure. But. Yeah. So, Fair enough. That's yeah. an update from last week for. You know, it's funny because I saw that story earlier. I was like, why does this sound familiar to me? <laughs> Completely forgetting that we had just talked about it yeah. last week. So well, that's, that's why right. it sounded so familiar to me. Um, we're trying not to go with bears every week, but that's just, you know, we had to do it. Well, it's been a while since I think, I think it's been a while anyway, since we talked about bears. And now we'll have to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was a last season thing and yeah. we're on to this season <clears throat> thing, but yeah, that's that was a, that's a, a worthy bear story though. That's true. And I've got a worthy pumpkin story. It okay. is uh, October. All and, right. um, there's a pumpkin weighing 2,749 pounds and it won a uh, California contest. It also set the world record for biggest gourd to kind of a throwback episode we're doing a world record <laughs> well that's funny because i mean i do have I, i'd seen that as well and like i have another one that has is similar but go ahead oh yeah yeah i mean i uh, unfortunately didn't get to read this story ahead of time so a minnesota horticulture teacher set a world record in california on monday for the heaviest pumpkin after growing a giant jack-o'-lantern gourd weighing 2749 pounds that's Ooh, huge that it's is really big yeah, in the picture of it yeah it is huge it looks more like 6 2 215 but you know whatever <laughs> Right, exactly. 2,749 pounds, yeah, that's crazy. And so the previous world record for heaviest pumpkin was set by a grower in Italy who produced a 2,702 pounds, so not much smaller. That was a squash in 2021, so it's just world record for uh, gourd, I guess, heaviest gourd. And this one happens to be a pumpkin rather than a squash. Right, and this one, he named it Michael Jordan. Did he really? Yeah. Because <laughs> I guess he's saying it's the goat. This oh, same right, guy's right, name's right. Travis Geinger. Ginger, Genghis Khan. Um, and he's won this before. He won in 2022 with the one that weighed 2,560 pounds that he named Maverick, and he won in 2020 with a 2,350-pound gourd named Tiger King. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that he names them. But I mean, okay. Yeah, he, he said feeding and caring for Michael Jordan cost him about fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> being planted in April tenth. So he said his thirty thousand dollars prize for winning the way off will go towards growing his next pumpkin. Huh. I mean, he's know. also earned another record when he carved his two thousand twenty-two pumpkin into the world's largest jack-o'-lantern, which would be it, you could just double up on that record yeah. immediately as soon as you grow that pumpkin, then you just carve it you know two records in one yeah for real although the carving of such a thing you have to be in there with shovels emptying that thing out just yeah. like accident and stuff. <laughs> it's really big yeah it's huge this guy I, mean, I don't know if you see the picture but the picture is like he's standing next to this big floppy looking mess yeah, it's definitely a floppy and looking, he is uh, like yeah like howard <laughs> dean did when he got he's going to delaware he's like i mean you would have thought this guy had just won powerball i mean good for him though that's how excited he but, is but i mean this it. guy's like keeps on winning he's, he's the tom brady of pumpkin growing apparently <laughs> exactly i mean you have to have a semi to take this thing you know what i mean right. you have to have yeah. a trailer you couldn't just throw this in the back of your f-150 yeah this like, thing is just you... so big it's like where it sits on the ground it just kind of gets fattened right. out because it's it's got so much crap in it. Ugh. Ugh. And it, it's not even orange, but whatever. Good, I, good job. I bet it smells amazing. Inside. Right now, it's probably fine. Oh, yeah. I mean, right now. Give it a month or two. Like, yeah, Leave it on your porch. That would take up your whole porch. <laughs> yeah, you, you put that out, to, and you'd not get trick-or-treaters. Basically, have to have it in the yard. You definitely, you're definitely not putting that on the front, front porch. Keeps any trick or treaters from even reaching the door. That's what you do. Oh, Lord. Um, I did find True about enough. a Missouri guy. 
and he, it was related to a pumpkin as well. Oh, since right. we're in the month of October, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Um, up. this Missouri guy paddled thirty-eight point four miles in a hollowed-out pumpkin. Oh wow! Yeah, he grew this pumpkin himself, and then paddled thirty-eight point four miles down the Missouri River to break a world record. That's pretty impressive. I'm Steve all right with Cooney that. of Lebanon, Missouri, said uh, he carved his. 1,208-pound pumpkin, so like less than half the size of his other one, right. into a boat he dubbed Huckleberry <laughs> and spent 11 hours paddling from Kansas City, Kansas to Napoleon, Missouri. Wow. Spent 11 hours inside of a pumpkin he hollowed out. There were about a dozen boats from the Paddle KC Paddling Club alongside okay. him to make sure, you know, as a support team and to help document the journey, right? Wow. Um Nebraska man Dwayne Hansen previously set this record for the longest journey by pumpkin boat paddling at 37.5 miles. And that was last year by pumpkin boat. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know what there is to do in the Midwest, but apparently not much. Yeah. I mean, this thing doesn't look, it's just like he dug a hole and put himself into it. If you can see the picture of it, it's, He's all dressed yeah. up in like a life vest. And, you know, he probably has to have a lot of I that mean, stuff. But I get, I get, you right. probably want to have that on you, you know. Yeah, for sure. If you're paddling a pumpkin down the Missouri River, they, for sure. We have I reached mean, peak human development <laughs> is what's happened. I mean, part of me is impressed and then part of me is like, huh. But also, right. is Missouri Midwest or is it like more southern? It's, it's considered a southern state, I think. Yeah, maybe. Surely, surely behaves like one. Sorry for all you listeners in the southern states. I guess it depends but, on which you know. part of Missouri or yeah, Missouri. True. Yeah, because it definitely borders southern states. But, but I mean, it, it also is like, how good do we have it here? Yeah. That, like, <laughs> that I mean, people have time to hollow out a pumpkin and just go on down the river. Like, there's real, yeah. like, there's things going on all over the place all the time. And we're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to. Make me a pumpkin boat. <laughs> right. I mean, part of me, again, I'm still like, meh, I mean, all right. But at the same time, I agree with you. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> we got it <laughs> On made. On one hand, okay. Like, we got it made. So. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, that that's that's the proof in the pudding. <laughs> Absolutely. So to speak. Um, I don't really. Uh, I do have this story because I'm not sure if I brought this story up. It might have been, I don't remember when, but this guy who found the bag of cash, um, and it ended up being like the town's cash, but he wasn't giving it back. <laughs> oh, I don't know anything about that. Yeah. Anyway, man man who found bag of cash and claimed finders keepers pays back town felony charge dropped. So a uh, Connecticut man who found a bag containing nearly $5,000 in cash outside a bank and claimed finders keepers had a criminal charge against him dropped Wednesday after he gave the money back. Robert Withington, 57, went to Bridgeport Superior Court for a scheduled court hearing and a state prosecutor and, well, well, yeah. So, uh... Yeah, he found the bank bag containing $4,761 on May 30th outside a bank in his hometown of Trumbull near Bridgeport. It turned out the money belonged to the Trumbull tax collector's office, and a town employee had dropped the bag while walking to the bank to deposit the money. How did you not realize you dropped a bag of money, though? And I guess unless you had a lot of money. You, were you had a lot of bags of money, maybe? Yeah, it's like maybe you should have been doing it a different way, though. Police said the bag had the bank's name on the outside, and there were deposit slips inside indicating the money belonged to the town. A police officer had escorted the town employee to the bank, but neither one noticed the bag being dropped. So, yeah, this guy finds it and was like, yeah, I mean, I know it's the town's, but I'm keeping it. It's mine. I found it. So what are they going to do about him? 
Well, the charges were dropped. Like oh. they're going to do nothing oh, now. Like yeah, he, that's the story now. Like back then, they were like, "All right, well, we're going to felony charges, like for basically stealing money from the town." And so the guys now agreed to give it back in court. Like they had to take him to court for it. But he's like, "All right, I'll pay it back." And they're like, "All right, we'll drop charges." And that's wow. it. <laughs> so what? What did we learn from this? <laughs> I, Finders keepers, I guess. On something like that, no, not finders keepers. You find a twenty in the parking lot, finders keepers, indeed. Even a hundred, I would say. Every, know, like, yeah. yeah, whatever. Like if it's unmarked and you don't know who it belongs to, like it's yours. Well, what are you going to walk mean, up to somebody? <laughs> right. Excuse me, did you drop this hundred dollar bill? Right. Almost everybody's go, yeah, I did. But if you find a bank bag with deposit slips inside telling you exactly who it belongs <laughs> right, to, right? That's like, a little different. I mean, especially if it's the town, you're like, well, this is probably going to be found out somehow. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm better off giving this back. Like five thousand bucks isn't worth it. I mean, apparently it is, or it is. Right? Yeah, I mean, he yeah. made out with. I it. mean, he has to give it back, but at this point, which he's probably spent it, so now he's going to have to pay it back. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, five thousand dollars is a good amount of money, but it doesn't really go that far. I mean, well, I mean, is it worth the potential of going to prison for? No, <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be way higher than that. <laughs> for sure. You know, yeah. so. Yeah, it'd have to be a whole lot more than that for me. So, anyway. Definitely. So, so yeah, okay. that was the only other news newsy story I had. Well, hey, yeah, we, I just found this out. Since right. today's Friday the 13th. Oh, it is Friday the 13th. Yeah, happy holidays to yeah, everybody. Happy horror day. Um, There's all sorts of things. Uh, It's called, what was it called? Triska Descophobia? Triscodecophobia is the fear of 13. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> it's uh, uncertain exactly where the particular tradition of Friday the 13th being unlucky began. Um, but for centuries, the number 13 has been, you know, kind of a negative okay. superstition around right. it. Yeah. Uh, Western cultures have historically associated the number 12 with completeness, like there's 12 days of Christmas, 12 months and zodiac signs, 12 labors of Hercules, 12 gods of Olympus, and 12 tribes of Israel, just to name a few examples. Um, The ancient code of Hammurabi, for example, or for the 13th, for the example, reportedly omitted a 13th law from its list of legal rules. Um, because it was 13. Yeah, they, 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 it's probably a clerical error, but superstitious people, you know, point that as proof of its long-standing negative associations. I'm not sure when the Code of Hammurabi. Her- um, <laughs> it sounds like it was a long time ago. It wasn't, it wasn't like a couple months ago. It wasn't on Twitter. Yeah, it definitely sounds dusty. Um, according to, yeah, absolutely, that's a good way to put it. According to biblical tradition, 13 guests attended the Last Supper held on Monday, Thursday, including Jesus and his 12 apostles, and the next day was Good Friday, so the 13 was... Um, <laughs> there's a uh, long-standing Christian superstition, I've never even heard of this, that having 13 guests at a table was a bad omen, uh, specifically oh. that it was courting death. Oh, um, though Friday's negative associations are weaker than the 13, is uh, some have suggested they also have roots in Christian tradition. Just as Jesus was crucified on a Friday, Friday was also said to be the day Eve gave Adam the fateful apple from the tree of knowledge, and as oh, well as the right. day that Cain kill, killed his brother Abel. 
Um, yeah. But did he deserve it? I'm just kidding. There's uh <laughs> right. So the 13 Club was a in the late 19th century a New Yorker named Captain William Fowler sought to remove the enduring stigma surrounding the number 13. And uh, he found an exclusive society called the 13 Club. And the thir- 13 Club regularly dined on the 13th day of the month in room 13 of the Knickerbocker College or cottage, <laughs> I'm sorry. A popular watering hole Fowler owned from 1863 to 1883. And before sitting down for a 13-course dinner, members would pass beneath a ladder and a banner saying <laughs> some Latin phrase, moratori te salutamus. I'm not afraid is, to die. Which is, those of us who are about to die salute you. Yeah. So, for those about to rock, we salute you, basically. <laughs> it's the 1800s version of that. Uh, four former U.S. presidents uh, would join the 13th club, 13 club's ranks at one time or another. Uh, Benjamin Harrison, Chester A. Arthur, Grover Cleveland, and Theodore Roosevelt. So, hmm. well, well, well. So there's you know a lot of other things that were happening. That there's been a lot of historical events that have happened on Friday Thirteenth. Obviously, movies, right? Um, Definitely the movies. Yeah, there's a book. Uh, Friday the Thirteenth was really kind of came about on this movie, or not? I'm sorry, movie, a book. It's a, a novel called Friday, comma, the 13th, it's written by Thomas William Lawson in 1907. Mm-hmm. So that's probably where the whole, like, thing really kind of took off. It was more, people had more access more to knowledge of that. You know. urban legend quality to it. Yeah, so yeah. happy Friday the 13th. Yeah, yeah happy Friday the 13th. There was a whole 13th. other page that I tried to get onto, and it was on it earlier. And it's in October, which is even... Oh, uh, you know. Friday the 13th comes in threes. Uh, all mean? years have at least one Friday the 13th. The good news is that there cannot be more than three Friday the 13th in any given calendar year. Huh. And the longest you can go without seeing a Friday the 13th is 14 months. So it's pretty common just the way that the calendar's set up. To have at least one every year. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Uh, and August is the worst, worst month for Friday the 13th. Uh, so you get more of them in August. Well, in Brazil, it says Friday the 13th in August is considered unluckier than any other Friday the 13th. As Augusto, which is August, rhymes with desco, Desgosto, which is sorrow. I mean, there's a whatever on that one. But, yeah, yeah, I mean. Yeah, um, yeah and on tw- in, uh, Friday, April 13th, 2029, uh, Adolphus99942 will uh, <laughs> have a good chance of flying by the Earth. Will will fly by the Earth and with a small chance of hopefully hitting us in 2029. So. Hopefully. Yeah. It'd be cool. I got to disagree with you on that. I mopefully. mean, it depends on where it hit. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't want it to be here. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, if it, it'd be bright. Yeah. And hit it in the middle of the Pacific. It's or big like, enough. It's going to have global implications, though. So, this I mean, isn't a real big one, though. Okay, fair enough. Um, they've revised their findings, scientists have, to show that there's absolutely no risk of the as- asteroid impacting Earth or the moon. Yeah, so you but, got you got us all worried. So you know it's Friday the thirteenth when we're making this. It's not probably when you're listening to this, but yeah, most of you it is. Now not for the next be. one that comes around, you will have some stuff to tell your <laughs> friends around your uh, pumpkin spice lattes. Yeah, is the next one going to be in the fall? Probably. <laughs> I don't know when it is. I'll look that up. Yeah, Google that one. Um, so we're doing the. Uh, Hey, I just found this out. Yeah. 
<clears throat> All right. Well, when I was doing uh, our theme for this uh, episode tonight, is uh, or today, or this morning, or whenever you're listening to this, um, it's like movies that are based on true stories. We had uh, what's like thriller, horror sort of genre. But uh, in my research for the movie that I'm doing tonight, I discovered that this, uh, I might have mentioned it on the podcast, but maybe we weren't recording uh, the new Thanksgiving horror movie that's coming out. I have seen the ads for that. Right. Um, I learned that Eli Roth is the director of that. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, And then I learned, hey, he hasn't done a movie in over a decade. Like, he's produced a lot of stuff. but Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, but apparently, this movie is based on a trailer that he directed for um, Grindhouse movie, uh, Death Proof and Planet Terror, when they right. came out. Oh, yeah, yeah. It came out as a double feature. With the machine and, gun leg and stuff. Yeah. Right. But there was, uh, you know, a bunch of trailers. Hobo with Shotgun was one of them. Machete. Um, Thanksgiving, apparently, was one of the trailers they did. And Eli Roth directed that trailer. And so now he's basing this movie on said trailer. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And I was like, as I thought in the movie, I was like, well, this seems ridiculous. Right. (laughs) But in a good way, kind (laughs) of. Now, this is like the, there's like, family is killing, people are killing people in this. Yeah, yeah, and I'll read a little bit about it okay. too. I'll, um, I'm going to read about the uh, the trailer or the trailer that he directed first back in the day, which is not a whole lot to read here. But uh, see, his contribution um, is a promotion for the slasher opus Thanksgiving, produced in the style of holiday themed slasher films such as the Canadian horror classic Black Christmas, Halloween, Silent Night, Deadly Night, April Fool's Day, and My Bloody Valentine. The trailer starred Jeff Rendell as a killer who stalks victims while dressed as a pilgrim. Jordan Ladd, Jay Hernandez, and Roth himself as his intended victims, and Michael Bean as the sheriff. The design for the title, I won't read about that. According to Roth, my friend Jeff, who plays the killer Pilgrim, we grew up in Massachusetts, we were huge slasher movie fans, and every November we were waiting for the Thanksgiving slasher movie. We had the whole movie worked out. A kid who's in love with a turkey, and then his father killed it, and then he killed his family and went away to a mental institution and came back and took revenge on the town. I called Jeff and said, dude, guess what? We don't have to make the movie. We can just shoot the best parts. Shooting the trailer was so much fun, Roth has stated, because every shot is a money shot. Every shot is a decapitation or a nudity. It's so ridiculous, it's absurd. It's just so wrong and sick that it's right. (laughs) Which is kind of how Eli Roth does all of his movies. Like Cabin Fever, Hostel. So this won't be like... Green uh, Inferno. This won't be like the other Thanksgiving horror movie called Thanksgiving. (laughs) Where the turkey turkey goes on a killing spree. (laughs) Right. Okay, so a little different angle. Yeah, a person at work I was talking to said the same thing. Thanksgiving was hilarious. (laughs) That's what they said. I actually hadn't seen it, oddly enough. And I'm going to have to look that one up and watch it. uh, Probably this weekend or if you love like those soon. cheesy, it's so bad, right? I mean, that that's good. You know, those kind of movies. And <laughs> Thanksgiving, maybe wait till November to watch it. You know, right? But you know, you got tons of uh, other choices for stuff. Yeah. But um, so the new movie um is coming out uh, this month. I think uh, no, oh, I'm sorry, next month, November seventeenth, of course. Thanksgiving's okay. not this month. Right. But uh, Thanksgiving, upcoming American slasher film directed by Eli Roth. Um, his friend Jeff Rendell is credited as the writer, the guy those two came up with the original. Premise on this one, though, is after a Black Friday riot ends in tragedy, a mysterious ser- serial killer known only as John Carver comes to Plymouth, Massachusetts with the intention of creating a Thanksgiving carving board out of the town's inhabitants. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. it's already, like, really punny and stuff. It's kind right. of, you know, like... John 
Carver. <laughs> right. So you it's know, definitely going to be Plymouth, Plymouth Rock, <laughs> right. Plymouth, Massachusetts. It's definitely going to be a like a Eli Roth like bloody ridiculous like maybe horrible a, maybe a screwdriver in the knee or yeah, something like hard that. Hard to watch kind of crap. Especially Green Inferno. I don't know if you saw that one. That one's kind of hard to watch, but it's it's based on Cannibal Holocaust. That movie oh, okay. from the seventies. Yeah. But yeah, it's pretty intense. Those things don't bother me. I like them. I mean, they don't bother me, bother me. But yeah, I've, I've watched them and I enjoy Eli Ross movies because they're absurd and ridiculous. But yeah, a lot of people don't like him. But, you know, hey, yeah, he does some pretty good stuff. We all stuff. like different things, Chris. Yeah, yeah, we all like different things. I did learn also while looking through Eli Roth's stuff that he has this movie that came out in 2019 where he's traveling around uh, figuring out why so many sharks were dying all over the world. So it's kind of a more of a... A good thing that he was doing. It's called oh. Finn. Huh. So yeah, so he was responsible for that movie coming out too. He's been doing a He's lot of producing busy. of horror movies like over the I mean, past I decade. I think he could pretty much pick and choose what he wants to do when name he wants on to do something. it. Yeah, yeah, pretty sure. much. Good for him. Yeah, so yeah, good for him. But that All was right. my hey. I just found this. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool because I've been kind of excited for the movie anyway. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> it looks like, like I mean, oh. I'd like to check it out. We've gotten better with horror movies in general. Yeah, that's yeah I good. agree. Even even the quote unquote bad ones are you know it's intentionally bad. It's a little bit different. You know, there's there's. Like Tucker and Dale vs. Evil is right. is a quote horror movie, but that is a hilarious movie. It really is. It's yeah. so funny. I love it when they have the weird premise that's completely Absolutely. off the rocker, but then also has like that goriness or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It still has the like cabin in the woods theme on that one too, so it's like it's still kind of grounded yeah. in traditional. And shit, whoever the main guy is, uh, yeah, Tucker. And, I mean, just so funny. I need to watch that again, too. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, so good that's stuff. a good segue, too, because this week's topic is... Uh, movies. Yeah, it's going to be movies, and the, and the genre is going to be horror, suspense, thriller, and that kind of whatever. We don't know. Well, I know what mine is, and he knows, but you know how it goes. <laughs> you know, the normal, the yeah. normal set. Um, but based on actual events, movies that are based on actual yeah. events in those in that genre right um i i mine was considered um i saw thriller i would call it like a a mind a mind fuck movie yeah you were saying that um mine is called go ahead it's fine (laughs) mine's called the uh stanford prison experiment and that's the name of the movie that's so funny i just watched half of that movie the other night dude yeah oh wow all right um it's kind of scary in parts, though. I mean, it's definitely like a it's a delve into like the mind of like what people will do. Yeah, definitely psychological. But yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't say it'd be scary, but it's definitely it's the movie is really in tune in in line with the actual events. Right. So it's it's not a documentary, but it's more shot like that, I guess. So yeah. um, it came out in 2015, and. Uh, the, the I guess the IMDb description is, uh, in 1971, Stanford's professor Philip Zimbardo, Billy Crudup, uh, conducts a con- controversial, psych- controversial psychology experiment in which college students pretend to be either prisoners or guards, but the proceedings soon get out of hand. Yeah, so, indeed they do. Uh, the Stanford Prison Experiment, SPE, it's probably what I'm going to call it most of the time. It's just the easy way to do it. Oh, right. Um, it was a uh, psychological experiment conducted in August of 1971. 
And uh, this was supposed to be a two-week simulation of a prison environment that would examine the effects of variables on participants' reactions and behaviors. And like I said, Philip Zombardo was a Stanford psychology professor, and he was the leader of the team, the research team for the study, okay? So right. the goals of this were to, were to follow, were as follows from the official web, website of the SPE. Uh, we wanted to see what the psychological effects were of becoming a prisoner or a prison guard. To do this, we needed to set up a, sim- a simulated prison and then carefully note the effects of this institution on the behavior of all those within its walls. Hmm. So they're going to set up a prison and yeah. assign people jobs, right? Um, an article from the Stanford News Service in 1996 said Zimbardo's primary reason for conducting the experiment was to focus on the power of roles, rules, symbols, group identity, and situational validation of behavior that would generally repulse ordinary individuals. And Zimbardo said, quote, I have been conducting research for some years on de-individuation, vandalism, and dehumanization that illustrated the ease with which ordinary people could could be led to engage in antisocial acts by putting them in situations where they felt anonymous or they could perceive of other ways that made them less than human as enemies or objects, end quote. So he'd mm-hmm. been thinking about how he's going to do some experiment I mean, on this. Interesting right? experiments, really. But, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this was like a legit thing because the U.S. Office of Naval Research, and they funded it. Right. And they funded it to understand antisocial behavior. Uh, the Navy and the Marine Corps wanted to investigate conflict between military guards and prisoners. And this that'll come later on, too. So come back around and you'll see some real world incidents of this happening okay right. so um so zimbardo received approval from the university to conduct the experiment and uh they put out an ad in the newspaper and the ad said it was in the help wanted section of the palo alto times and the stanford daily newspapers in august of 71 okay so um this the, it said that this is the actual entire reading of the, the ad Male college students needed for psychological study of prison life. $15 per day for one to two weeks beginning August 14th. For further information and applications, come to room 248, Jordan Hall, Stanford U. Those are the, that's the actual that's like, the flyer for yeah. an ad. Yeah. It's just an ad in the newspaper. That's how the movie starts is the printing of that yeah. ad, right? Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I just watched this. Yeah. yeah, yeah it was, uh, yeah. Um, so they had 75 guys apply and 15 bucks a day. For two weeks, especially at that time, nineteen seventy-one. A... It's it's like one hundred eighty dollars a day today. Yeah, to get them out. I have it down farther down. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to it. But well, in the scene a, where they're interviewing all the guys, guy, everybody's like, for that money, like, yeah, yeah. I'll do whatever. Yeah, because I mean, they have to go yeah. through screening process, right? right. Uh, the screening process after the seventy-five young men applied, uh, the screening was to exclude those with criminal backgrounds, psychological impairments, or medical problems. And uh, eventually, 24 subjects were selected for the two-week prison simulation. And the movie shows them flip a coin. I don't know how they pick to randomly assign them as, as being prison uh, guards. It doesn't say that. All right. Or prisoners. But I wondered if that was how they did it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't find anything about it, but, I mean, that's as random as you're going to get. I was I mean, going to say, seems like the best unless way Unless you're do just it. picking out of a box with like you know red or blue and you know whatever right yeah um 
most of the people that were taken, most of the guys that were taken for this were uh, white, middle class, and appeared to be psychologically stable and healthy. And uh, they all agreed to participate for a 7- to 14-day period, like I said, for $15 a day. That's $110 a day. Um, so, yeah. And half of them, so 12, were assigned as guards, so and 12 were assigned as uh, prisoners. Uh, and that was nine plus three substitutes on each. So nine of them were going to be – the subs were just there if they needed – they'd get paid either way. So. Right. Even better if you didn't have to be involved in this because you don't want to be involved with this. <laughs> right. So. Indeed. Um, the setup, Saturday, August 14th, right? This is the setup day. Um, the guards were given uniforms specifically designed to de-individuate them. So they used mirrored sunglasses, wooden batons, and khaki shirts and pants. And the the reason for the sunglasses was to prevent eye contact and to create anonymity. Okay, so come again? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> twice is enough. <laughs> uh, so in the basement of Jordan Hall, they started. They built up small mock prison cells, and each one was to hold three prisoners. Um, there was a small corridor for the prison yard, a closet for solitary confinement, and a bigger room across from the prisoners for the guards and the warden. Okay, so it's just this is like graduate assistant offices in the basement of this building right, <laughs> right. especially the way they made it look in the movie too. that's exactly yeah. the way it looks because <laughs> yeah. you know, there's video of this like you can oh, find looks, you okay. can find yeah. actual video of this i mean this is a it's like pretty printed, famous like paper signs that, like uh solitary yeah. or whatever yeah, yeah. and it's just yeah. a clause that they're throwing them in right? right um undergrad research assistant named david jaffe uh he took on the role of the warden so that way he could be kind of involved with it, but right. not involved with it. And I'm using the air quotes, right? Because well, things um, could obviously get out of hand pretty quickly if you let them. Right. Yeah. But we'll see. Right. Uh, during the orientation, guards were instructed not to harm the prisoners physically or with withhold food and water, but they were to maintain law and order. And based on recordings from the experiment guards were instructed by the researchers to disrespect the prisoners and make them feel submissive helpless and unheard so they weren't supposed to touch them but they could do all this other stuff and they were kind of <clears throat> encouraged to do could this could be verbally abusive essentially right. yeah um one example is this they had to refer to prisoners by name by number rather than their name and according to zimbardo this was uh, intended to diminish the prisoners individuality and with no control, prisoners learned that they had little effect on what happened to them, ultimately causing them to stop responding and give up. So, I mean, he, he knows what he's expecting from this experiment. Right, right yeah. Um, now, Zimbardo has explained that guard orientations in the prison system instructed the guards to exert power over the prisoners. And furthermore, he asserts that his fellow researcher explicitly instructed the guards to not physically inflict, inflict harm on the prisoners, but at the same time make the prisoners feel that they were in an actual prison. Uh, he said, asking a person role-playing a guard in a prison simulation to be firm and in the action is mild compared to the pressure exerted by actual wardens and superior officers in real-life prison and military settings, where guards failing to participate can fully face disciplinary hearings, demotion, or dismissal. So he's trying to make it as much as, like, you're going to have repercussions if you don't do this. Right. Without, yeah. I mean, he can't do certain things because of... The experiment. Just the situation. He's yeah. dealing yeah. with college volunteers, right? Right. 
Okay, so like we were talking about the basement. It's 35 section of the basement of Jordan Hall, which is Stanford Psychology Building. Uh, it had two fabricated walls, and one one of the is at the entrance, and one of the cell wall to block observation. Uh, each cell was uh, unlit and was seven foot by ten foot with three people in it. Oh well. And each each of the prisoners had a cot with a mattress, sheet, and pillow. Um, prisoners were confined in these cells and had to stay in their cells in the yard all day and night until the study was finished. So no, I mean this is a basement. Right. No access to the outside signing world. Signing up for basically easy prison, <laughs> kind of. But I mean they, they don't get to go outside. They, there's no windows or anything, right? right? Yeah. Um, the guards stayed in a different area, separate from the prisoners, and the guards were given to access to special areas for rest and relaxation. And uh, they split into groups of three for eight-hour shifts. So the guards were not required to stay on site after their shift. So they just came to work oh, as wow. a guard. Okay, so day one is Sunday, August 15th, okay? So the participants who had been assigned a prisoner role were mock-arrested by the local Palo Alto police at their homes or assigned sites. So they're so just that like, was real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they just like pull up, and the, the real police department comes and arrests them. Yeah. Um, the participants were initially not informed that they would be arrested, as the researchers wanted it to come to be a surprise. Mm. And... In Zimbardo's own, own contract that all these participants had signed, this was a breach of the ethics of his own contract. So oh, he was really? already fucking this up on purpose. Uh, I, the very sure. beginning. Um, the arrests of these guys involved charging them with armed robbery and burglary, which are, uh, you know, two real charges that yeah, would very be bad. Real charges, you know? yeah. Uh, the Palo Alto Police Department assisted Zimbardo's team with the simulated arrests and conducted full booking, booking procedures on the prisoners at Palo Alto City Police Headquarters, and it included reading Miranda rights, fingerprinting, and taking mug shots. Oh, wow. Everything was video documented by local, local San Francisco TV station reporter that was traveling around in Zimbardo's car. So everything, everything in this whole thing is videotaped. I'm sure you can find right. all of it if you really get into it, but some of it's probably just you have to be in, at Stanford to look at right. it. Right, yeah, to have access to it. Um, so while this is happening, all these people are getting arrested, uh, three guards prep for the arrival of their inmates. And the prisoners were then transported to the mock prison from police station with sirens and everything. Excuse me. Bless you. In what they named the Stanford County Jail... Uh, the prisoners were systematically strip searched and given their new identities, which was their number, and right. a uniform. And the uniform was what you see in the movie. Uh, uncomfortable, ill-fitting smocks, no underwear, and basically pantyhose stocking caps and a chain around one, around one ankle. <laughs> um, each guard, each number, each smock had a, gar, a number on it, sorry. And uh, that's the only thing that guards were to call them was their number. Never use their name. And that was a way to dehumanize them. Okay? Right. Um, so they all get there, and the prisoners were then greeted by the warden, who conveyed the serious, seriousness of their offense and their new status as prisoners. Uh, they were presented the rules, and they were sent to their cells for the rest of the day. So, kind of uneventful. Right. Day two... Uh, Monday the 16th, guards ref referred to prisoners by their identification number and confined them to their cells 
all day. Um, at 2.30 a.m., the prisoners rebelled against the guards' wake-up calls of whistles and clanging, which they constantly did to right. check on them, you know, to make sure there's head counts and all this stuff, right? Right. Um, during this rebellion, prisoners refused to leave their cells to eat in the yard, the yard, which is the hallway, <laughs> and ripped off their inmate number tags and took off their stocking caps and insulted the guards. This is day one. <laughs> Um, the right. guards, in response to this, sprayed fire extinguishers at the prisoners to reassert control into these little rooms. Uh, I mean, the fire extinguisher blows out in a 1970s fire extinguisher. <laughs> There's probably straight asbestos going in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's basic. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, whatever. Like, you're not allowed to hit them. That's almost right. like hitting somebody. So they're trying point. to, you know. The three backup cards were called in during this to help regain control. And in another response that the guards did is they removed all the prisoners' clothes and removed mattresses and sent the main instigators to time in what they called the hole. Now, they weren't supposed to spend more than an hour in the hole. But oh, they, wow. they, that, that was the rule, but they ended up keeping them in there for three, four hours sometimes. Um, right. And uh, they attempted to dissuade any further rebellion using psychological warfare, and one of the guards was even saying to the other ones that these are dangerous prisoners. So, like somebody's like kind of feeding this narrative and creating this thing more and more because immediately the prisoners are treated like prisoners right but more extreme version of it i mean yeah. some of this you can't do you know so <laughs> right day, that was day two so day three uh in order to restrict further acts of disobedience the guards separated and rewarded prisoners who had minor roles in the rebellion and they got to spend time in the good cell where they got clothing beds and food and in the the rest of the jail population didn't. And uh, after twelve hours, uh, the three returned to their old cells that lacked beds. So they're kind of like, "Here you go," and now you're back where you're going. You know? <laughs> right. Um, wow. Guards in this experiment were allowed to abuse their power to humiliate humiliate the inmates. Uh, they had prisoners count off and do push-ups arbitrarily, restricted access to bathrooms, and forced them to shit and piss in buckets in their cells wow so after 36 hours of this douglas corpy who was uh prisoner 8612 uh had an apparent mental breakdown in which he yelled jesus christ i'm burning up inside and i can't stand another night i just can't take it anymore and uh research assistant craig haney released corpy after seeing him losing his shit right right in 2017, Corpy stated this breakdown had been a fake, and he only did it so he didn't he could leave and not and he could return to studying for his grad record exam because he thought while he was imprisoned he was just going to be able to like sit around and study. He didn't realize <laughs> that like these other guys were going to go full right, war. That right? it was going to be what it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, later, he also during this interview re expressed regret that he had not filed a false imprisonment charge at the time. Now, 2018, Zimbardo stated that he needed to treat the breakdown as real and release him and believes that the 2017 interview with Corpy was a lie. Hmm. Because in 1992, in a documentary called Quiet Rage, Corpy said that the experiment had deeply affected him and had led him to later become a prison psychologist. So hmm. the guy went on and, like, did something, right? Right, right. Um, but in the movie, like, the guy's freaking out. Yeah. And, like, they're, they're purposely, these guys are going... 
Oh, they're going at him pretty hard. And this, yeah. it's pretty realistic as yeah. to what was really happening. And they're, they're picking this one guy out through a lot of it, too. Yeah, you got to yeah. make an example of the one. Right, You're not allowed right. to hit and stuff, so you got to, like, right. show that you have the power. You're the guards, right? Yeah. Uh, day four. So this is all still the, this is just the first <laughs> right. three days, right? Uh, so witnessing that guards divide prisoners based on their good and rebellious behavior, the inmates started to distance themselves from one another. So obviously people started thinking other one were snitches and this kind of stuff. Uh, other prisoners wow. saw the rebels as a threat to the status quo since they wanted to have their sleeping cots and clothes again. Um, a prisoner 819, who I didn't get a name for, he was 819, began showing symptoms of distress at some point during day four. And he began crying in his cell. They brought a priest in to talk with him, but the young man declined to talk and instead asked for a medical doctor. Um, after hearing him cry, Zimbardo reassured him of his actual identity and removed him. And when prisoner 819 was leaving, the guards basically stirred up the other inmates to loudly and repeatedly decry that, quote, 819 did a bad thing. And they just had to repeat that over and over and over. They're just like more <laughs> wow. mind game kind right. of shit. Um, day five was the day that was scheduled for visitations by friends and family of the prisoners. So they gave them like the treat of meeting up with their family. Um, the guards in the, in Zimbardo made visitors wait for long periods of time to see their loved ones. And only two visitors could see any one prisoner and only for just 10 minutes at a time oh, while wow. the guard was standing right over them. Wow. So, um, parents obviously became concerned about their son's well being. And whether they'd had enough to eat, even though they they didn't they couldn't withhold food, right? Right. Um, some parents left with plans to contact lawyers, and you know, it wasn't good. The, the movie makes it seem like everybody was kind of coming in all at once. No, it was right. like there was one. Yeah, at I didn't a time. get to that part of the movie. I, okay. I fell asleep, and then I yeah, all right. It was on TV. It's a good which, movie though. Yeah, so yeah it's, it is. It's, it's really it's, good. It's good to watch. Just I hope to go back and finish it. Um. So that same day, Zimbardo's colleague Gordon H. Bauer arrived to check on the experiment and questioned Zimbardo about the what about what the independent variable of the research was. So independent variables are like subject variables, you know, um, right. gender, age, health status, mood, background, uh, other stuff like how a person behaves and the characteristics of the person conducting the experiment. You know, uh, all sorts of situational variables, all sorts of stuff, right? right? Christina Moslick also visited the prison at night. She's another doctor in the in the in the school and uh, was distressed after observing guards abusing the prisoners, forcing them to wear bags over their heads. Um, she challenged uh, Zimbardo about his lack of caring oversight and the immorality of the study, and uh, yeah. she made evident that Zimbardo had been changed by his role as superintendent into someone she did not recognize and did not like because. A year after this experiment, her and Zimbardo were married. Oh. So they were together, and she saw him, like, delving into this, like, dark place. Right. You know? um, and her direct challenges prompted Zimbardo to end the SPE the next day. So this, in five days, six days, <laughs> it, was it, went, it went really bad, really quick. Um, it's crazy that it went so bad so fast. Yeah, it's like they gave these guys carte blanche to do basically whatever and yeah. like you treat them like prisoners and then they instantly went into like treating them badly and then being treated badly makes you have bad reactions which gives them 
you know, it's like a it's a cycle, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So on Friday, August twentieth, that was day six. Uh, because of Moslick and the parents and increasing brutality exhibited by guards in the experiment, Zimbardo ended the study. Uh, he still paid them for the fourteen days, two hundred ten dollars, which is about fifteen hundred dollars. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of money in 1971. Yeah. And for several hours, uh, he met with all of them in, with, for de, for informed debriefing. First with the prisoners, then with the guards, and then everyone came together, to, which had to have been one of the most awkward things. Oh, man. Probably not much fun to be in that room. No. no especially um, now that you don't have to act like somebody's bitch. Right. Uh, they came back a week later after to share more opinions and emotions and the, the physical components of the Stanford County jail were taken down and out of the basement and of Jordan hall. And then they just turned them back into, um, offices, offices. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they had them come back and, uh, let's see, they, he, it, eventually all of this led to, uh, Zimbardo writing a book called the Lucifer effect. Oh. Um, and that outlines a lot of different stuff in this. He, there's another more recent book, The Lucifer Effect, uh, How Good People Become Bad or Become Evil or whatever. Anyway, some of the guards' behavior, these are some of the problems, uh, allegedly led to dangerous and psychologically damaging situations. Um, there were a lot of ethical concerns, obviously. Right. And often draw comparisons to the Milgram experiment, which was 10 years earlier at Yale. Um, that's the one where... They basically tell people that you have to shock this guy, and the guy on the other side of the wall. If you if you shock, you're not really shocking him, but like he right. you, you you don't see him, so you only hear him. Like you ah! think that you're shocking, him. and then they yeah. make you shock him, and you it's becoming worse and worse on the other side of the wall, and they want to right. see how far people will go. Yeah. People will because go pretty told, damn far, yeah. right? And some of them enjoy it. Um, the treatments that the guard was giving to the prisoners. Uh, it was really bad because the guards would become so deeply absorbed into their role that they would emotionally, physically, and mentally humiliate the prisoners. Um, each prisoner prisoner was systematically searched and stripped naked, and then was deloused. And uh, real and, and Zimbardo says real male, male prisoners don't wear dresses, but real male prisoners do feel hum- humiliated and do feel emasculated. Our goal was to produce similar effects quickly by putting men under dress without any underclothes. Indeed, as soon as some of our prisoners were put in these uniforms, they began to walk and to sit differently and to hold themselves differently, more like a woman than like a man. So, Hmm. all of this was like completely done with purpose, obviously, but I mean, right? I don't know how much it was a good thing, but (laughs) although like all these guys claim to be unaffected by this like everybody kind of went back to their lives right. i i'm it's, not sure i mean it's possible whatever like it's probably harder on some guys than it is on others sure, i mean yeah. you know yeah. um the warden david jaffe tried to influence the behavior of one of the guards by encouraging him to participate more and to be more tough for the benefit of the experiment um there's a guy in the movie uh, it, I don't know who plays him, but he plays the character John Wayne, which is the name of the, yeah, the main guard, him. who's the biggest asshole. He definitely is. And his name is David Eshelman. And uh, David Eshelman acknowledges that his theater background lent himself well to his role as guard, and he purposely thought of new ways to demean the prisoners, 
Um, on one shift, he instructed prisoners to sim- sim- simulate sodomy, and uh, Zimbardo has responded to this argument by stating that other guards acted similarly or engaged with Eshelman in the treatment of the prisoners. So he started, but the other ones came along with him. Right. Yeah, followed right um, along. Just like the people shocking people. It's like, all right, well, if you're telling me to. Yeah, he, he Eshelman thought he was like the warden in Cool Hand Luke. He, Zimbardo called him John Wayne. Right. And he just kind of stuck as like he was being the hard-nosed cowboy kind of guy. Because mm-hmm. he was even talking different than he normally talked. Yeah. Um, more importantly, guards on different shifts than Eshelman exacted similar acts of emotional and mental brutality. And Zimbardo further argues that the behaviors of the participant guards were not unlike those of real-world prison atrocities or the actions taken by American soldiers in the Abu Ghraib prison. Um, most of the guards have stated since the SPE that they were intentionally acting. Intentionally acting. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it started that way. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. You get into but, it, I'm sure. There's right. like the sick, sadistic, and everybody has it. But it's most certain, of us know when you've gone too far. Yeah. Not everybody. Right. But, you know. You know when, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that kind right. of thing. It, it was kind of turned off. Yeah. Um, critics of the study have argued the selection bias may have played a role in the results to the ad describing a need for prisoners and guards rather than a social psychology study. So... Yeah, you're enough. going you're you're going in thinking that it's one thing and it's end up something different, right? Right. Um uh Thomas Carham and uh Sam McFarland argued these are two uh other psychologists argued that those that applied to participate had already had traits associated with abusiveness, aggression, right wing authoritarianism, Machiavellianism, social dominance, and narcissism. Yeah. Because they were looking to be in this prison, prison guard kind of thing. Right. Uh, low dispositional empathy and altruism were also to be in- indicators of someone who v- would volunteer. Yeah. So Fair even enough. the guys that were, everybody was applying to be, probably in their minds, to be the guard. Right. You Although know? in the movie, everybody says, I'd rather be a prisoner. <laughs> yeah, I think that's <laughs> like, oh, I think I'm just yeah. going to like hang out. You know? Right, yeah. Um, it, a lot of people think it has questionable ethics, and the most questionable was... Uh, it continued even after participants participants expressed their desire to withdraw. Right. Even though they had they were told they had the right to leave at any time, they did not allow this for the most part. Um, obviously, those, those two did leave. Mm-hmm. Um, although there was only limited ethical oversight at the time, some aspects of the study were in contradiction of the contract that was signed by participants. Yeah. Um, and you had mentioned that... Uh well, forget. Oh, the no. What was the first thing that he did? The very first thing that he did that broke the contract. I can't remember what you told me. Oh, it was almost the, immediately. Yeah, I, I can't even. When he went and arrested them, was that when? Uh, yeah, he yeah. didn't say that he was going to do that. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Just took them out of their regular lives, like by surprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of the stuff that they got was just. I yeah. don't know how much it's accurate or whatever. Right. Um, only a third of the guards displayed sadistic behaviors. SPE. This is. Eric Fromm argued that SP is more accurately an example of how a situation cannot influence a person's behavior. I'm not sure how I believe that one, hmm. but um, participants' behavior may have been shaped by knowing that they were watched. So they knew that there were cameras there. They could see the cameras. Yeah. I mean, I can see that. Um, instead of being restrained by fear of an, of an observer, guards may have behaved more aggressively when supervisors observing them do not step in to restrain them. So in the movie, you can see 
they do stuff and Zimbardo and the other people are like, well, don't go in there. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, they definitely let things go. Yeah. Um, they even had one of the one of the researchers that was doing stuff, he had spent like 17 years in prison and he oh, was right. like, that's not the way that they treat prisoners. Like, you can't do this. And then they, they, eventually he was like, just keep doing it, see what happens. <laughs> um, one, po- one positive result is it's the way it's altered the way U.S. prisons are run. Hmm. Um, federal juveniles accused of federal crimes are no longer housed before trial with adult prisoners, but that's only federal. That's pretty low for juveniles, right? Right. Um, Zimbardo did submit a statement to the U. 1971 U.S. House Committee on the Judiciary about the experiment's findings. And uh, they've gotten more strict on guidelines for experiments using human subjects. So um, Hmm. it led to the implementation of rules to preclude any harmful treatment of participants. And human studies before they're implemented must now be reviewed by an institutional review board or ethics committee and have to be set in accordance with ethical guidelines right. so i mean you know um they also do post experiment debriefing so they can find out anything that you know anything that's right now happening that they're failing right you know, that wasn't really something that was done before um so abu grave i mentioned mm-hmm. and uh that was kind of the same thing because zimbardo was a uh was a uh a witness in the trials of at least one of the oh um he did say i didn't realize that well i guess i wouldn't have yeah he was uh dismayed by official military and government representatives shifting the blame for the torture and abuses in the abu Ghraib american military prison onto a few bad apples rather than acknowledging the possibly systemic problems of a formerly established military incarceration system okay so Uh, he's quoted he's quoted saying i argue that we all have the capacity for love and evil to be mother Teresa, to be hitler or saddam hussein it's the situation that brings that out um eventually he became involved with the defense team of uh staff sergeant ivan chip frederick and he's granted full access to all investigation and background reports and testifies as an expert witness in frederick's court-martial and they didn't really believe anything zimbardo said which i would disagree with but yeah, um yeah, I, yeah frederick was sentenced to eight years in prison in 2004 so <laughs> um zimbardo's still alive today he's 90 oh wow. and he's the founder of the heroic imagination project which in in dedicated to promoting heroism in everyday life which i don't know how like why it's called the be hero. a hero <laughs> get out there and be a hero i mean you know i mean i guess it's a, a positive outlook yeah but, yeah um he's still he still is a um, speaker sometimes. He wrote The Lucifer Effect, The Time Paradox, The Time Cure, and The Lucifer Effect, uh, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. <laughs> He's a professor emeritus at Stanford, and uh, like I said, one year after the SPE, he married Christina Mosluk, and they're still married. Um, mm-hmm. And I told you earlier, uh, I told you before we started recording, about a 2010 movie called The Experiment, with uh, Adrian Brody and Forrest Whitaker, oh, also that's what that it. movie is. Yeah, um, season three, episode two of Veronica Mars. It features a similar experiment as well as season fifteen, episode ten of American Dad. <laughs> um, there's a book by Richard Powers. Old Dick Powers wrote a fictional story of Douglas Pavlicek, who was a uh, prisoner in the SPE. It's called The Overstory. 
Obviously, hmm. that's it's just a retelling, I, I guess. I've heard of uh, the Uber story. So it didn't take long for these people to like take their roles too far in some sense and yeah, then like you yeah. know then they got rebellion which made them go worse and worse and they kind of zimbardo and his whole crew just kind of like sat back and let things happen and sometimes even at least according to what i saw in the movie like seemed to to goad it seemed to push it a little yeah, bit yeah like, or like know. don't go stay, right stand here don't bother so it seems like right up front they were told like feel free to be shitty basically yeah and so yeah. it's like that's the part where it's like well that's wrong like you can't like right. you're trying to see what's actually going to happen, not what you want to happen. And I didn't see like, much on whether they knew that the other ones were just like them, where they were just student volunteers, or like I didn't right. see much on like how they yeah, it presented it as like right. Who uh, did they think that they were actually prisoners, and did they think that they were actually guards? Right. Did on they vice think versa? That only the you prisoners know? were the volunteers, and right. Yeah. yeah I mean yeah. that's. But yeah. it's interesting. So if you want to check it out kind of a mind delve, I'd like to go movie, finish it. Yeah, it was late. It's uh, and... on Pluto for free if you want to check it out. Yeah, funny that I just I didn't even catch it on Pluto. I was watching regular old TV, oh, and wow. there it was. I was well, like, hmm. It's on Pluto if you want to finish it up. Funny that you did that movie too. Yeah, so good one. That was a good one. Um, so now you've got one that's a yeah. Mine tends to be a movie that, in my realm. experience, either people really don't like it or people do like it. It's Thanksgiving, it's a, isn't it? <laughs> it is definitely not Thanksgiving. Based on true events, <laughs> I was going to joke and say that I was doing the Blair Witch Project, but <laughs> and I did actually think about doing it and basing it on what you know how they came out, how they promoted it as actually being a real thing. Oh right, and yeah. like how that kind of made the movie actually. Oh, everybody yeah. thought it was right. real. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But um, I did not do that. I did the Strangers. Oh, yeah, okay. Which I find absolutely horrifying. Having grown up out in the middle of nowhere, you yeah. know, like people show up at your house with masks on. Like, hey, hell I mean, Chris no. and I lived together years ago, and the first <laughs> six months we lived in this house, yeah. I'd spent looking out the front window waiting for the strangers <laughs> to show up. Yeah, dude. I mean, probably half the time that we spent in the house, you were standing out the window looking out. I was ready for it to happen. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I did the strangers, and um, it was based on... Uh, like three different things at the beginning of the movie it's um a thing comes up that says inspired by true events right and so there are um actually two things that the uh director brian bertino said inspired uh the events in the movie so um from wikipedia 2008 american psychological horror film that was uh the strangers was written and directed by brian bertino who was inspired by two real life events the multiple homicide manson family tate murders and a series of break-ins that occurred in bertino's neighborhood as a child um the ones that occurred in his neighborhood apparently were uh he remembers being a kid and his parents had left him and his sister at home one night and somebody had come and knocked on the door and asked for someone who didn't live there, just like happens in The Strangers. But uh, these people, it turned out, they found out they were looking for people who weren't home so that they could actually rob the house. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Whereas okay. The Strangers is basically the reverse of that. They were looking for someone. They didn't want to rob anything. Right, yeah. yeah, they just wanted to torment these people. Um, and then, of course, the the Tate, uh, the Manson family, the Tate murders, which I'll talk a little bit about um, in a little bit uh I guess kind of obvious because they just went straight up, ran into this house, Sharon Tate's house, and uh, murdered everyone there, basically. Yeah. And I'll read a little bit about it, but uh, that one kind of gets overdone, so I won't spend a whole lot of time talking about it. But I'm going to talk about some home invasion stuff. I'm going to talk Ooh. a lot about the actual movie. 
Um, and then, um, when, after the movie came out, some journalists talking about the movie noted similarities between the, the film and the Ketty Cabin murders that occurred in Ketty, California in 1981. Um, but the director doesn't cite that as something that it inspired him to do it. But it is a very similar incident. I'll read more about that in a little bit, too. But about the movie, it was actually made for only $9 million, but ended up grossing $82 million. I didn't realize it had been that successful. (laughs) That's a good good return on investment. Absolutely. Yeah. um, Shot on location in rural South Carolina. um, Originally slated for a theater. Oh, well, you don't care about Nobody cares about that. I meant to take that out of my notes. (laughs) It received mixed reviews from critics, with some praising its atmosphere and tension, and others criticizing its script and characters. Um, I'm going to read some criticisms later on, and for the most part, I mean, I'm biased. I really like the movie, but I'm like, well, first of all... It's kind of the same with critics in all horror movies. It's like, you did realize you were watching a horror movie, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they expect it to be the godfather. Right, like, yeah, exactly. And it's like, I mean, I thought it was pretty well acted, to be quite honest, with um, Liv Tyler and uh, I can't remember the oh, guy's that's name. Right. But, uh, but yeah. I think I mean, there was an older one, too. There was, Well, there's, um, and I've got that somewhere in here, too. Let me get down to my notes. Well, I'll get there. But, uh, yeah, there are some other movies I listed uh an older one that's called uh, Straw Dogs. I don't know if that's the one you're thinking of. But, I thought uh, there was another one called The Strangers, but I might be wrong. There might be. It, I didn't read about it here, but there might be that maybe he didn't even base it on. But Okay. But, yeah, anyway. that's And he's um our age, too, man. Imagine if you had directed a movie like The Strangers, what, back in 2007. So. <laughs> I was barely not looking out the window by then. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, based on events happening right now. So, heads up, spoilers, everybody. If you haven't seen The Strangers and you care to, then then and you don't want to get any of it spoiled for you, then I'm not going to give you the whole plot. But I think it's fun to talk about the beginning of it because that's my favorite part of the movie. Is like when it really, it's like holy crap, like f this, yeah, <laughs> you know, and the way that they do act stupid in some ways, but you don't know how you would act in that. I mean, dude, it's 4 a.m. And somebody knocks on the door, and it's just, yeah, it's weird from there on out. And Even if it's somebody you know at 4 a.m., yeah. it's going to freak you out. I think the thing that I would be doing I'm awake is, at 4 a.m., and that would freak <laughs> me out. I would not be answering, is basically what I would be doing. Like, who the hell is this? Like, let me just hang tight and see what's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> get ready to defend myself in the house. Get, uh, I mean, yeah. like, get, get armed to the teeth. Right, exactly. But um, plot of the movie. James Hoyt and Kristen McKay arrived at night to James's isolated childhood summer home after attending a friend's wedding. Tension abounds between the couple as Kristen rejected James's marriage proposal to her after the reception. When I rewatched this this past week, I'd forgotten about this whole beginning thing. They're all depressed and sad. James calls his friend Mike and asks him to pick him up in the morning. Shortly after 4 a.m., there is a loud knock at the door. Um, a young blonde woman, whose face is obstructed by poor lighting, asks the couple, Is Tamara here? James tells her she is at the wrong house, and the woman leaves. In this part of the movie, like, they open the door and the lights out on the front porch and when the girl walks away he reaches up and screws it back in and neither one of them seemed to think there's anything strange that the light bulb was which was working before <laughs> yeah but is that one of those things you notice yeah i mean you know? I, i'm like why is it unscrewed now though like why is screwing it yeah, back but in would the- you notice when you walked in maybe you just thought it was yeah maybe not when you walked in but if it's at night, you wouldn't it's be able to see to unlock it, it the is, door. I tell you what, I've seen this movie before, and I like it a lot. Right. And I think it's one of those that's really good because it doesn't take long to get into, like, oh, shit, it's happening. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like, <laughs> right. all right, 20 minutes in, yeah. 
30 minutes in, you're like, all right, where's the shit going to start? Right. This one's, yeah. Because this one, you're getting ready to expect it to do that, and then it and then it starts to get the knock on the door, and you're like, right. wait, what the hell is, okay, all right, yeah. here we go. <laughs> Moving yeah. right along. It's like almost not even 15 minutes in, I think, and there's the knock on yeah. the door. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the girl leaves. Uh, James goes for a drive to purchase a pack of cigarettes for Kristen. Like, really, dude? Like, it's four in the morning. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, somebody just knocked on the door. Just, I'm yeah, leaving. Let's just go to sleep, and, like, we'll get up in the morning, and you can get your cigarettes then. Mm-hmm. Whatever. But uh, before he departs, he starts a fire in the hearth. While waiting for him to return, Kristen hears another knock on the door, but does not open it. There you go, Kristen. Upon asking who it is, she learns, don't ask who it is, she learns it is the same woman from earlier, again asking for Tamara. Kristen reminds her that she already came by and locks the door as she walks away. She realizes the chimney flue is closed and attempts to open it because the smoke coming out triggers the smoke alarm. As she's attempting to disarm that alarm, that's when you get the really lard like bam bang on the door. Sorry, I screamed in everybody's ear. But um at this point, the blam blang, <laughs> the blam blang. She uh, runs, calls James' cell phone from the landline, um, but their call is cut short. Of course it is. Kristen returns to the kitchen where, unbeknownst to her, a masked man watches her from an adjacent hallway. That's a very scary part of the movie because she never realizes it, of course, but she's on the phone and you see this blurry what might be a person in the background and then, of course, the camera goes away. When it pans back, it's gone. You're like, ah, damn it. Because <laughs> you haven't yet seen anybody in masks, right. so you're not really sure what the hell's going oh, on. Oh yeah, they're wearing yeah. masks. Yeah, they're all wearing masks too. <laughs> so, super creepy, and not like happy masks. Not happy masks, no. And the dude, I think, is just wearing basically like a sack over his head. Like the other two mm-hmm. have actual masks. The girls yeah. have masks, but the guy, it's two girls and a guy. And... Yeah. So. um this is from my notes. Chaos ensues, of course, and they spend the next hour plus of the movie attempting to save themselves, <laughs> which is essentially true. This is where the movie kind of becomes a slasher because they're trying to get away from these people and, like, you know, they're being attacked, um, you know, basically trying to save themselves, right. wait for the sun to come up. But even at that point, you're in the middle of nowhere. Right, I mean, yeah. What's What good is the sun going to do? Yeah, I mean, if that, that happened I mean, in certain neighborhoods, you wouldn't think that much of somebody knocking on the door and asking for somebody, just some drunk college kid or something, you know? <laughs> right, for sure. But yeah, you're out in the country in the wrong house. Ugh, yeah, and they don't, at least from where the way it seems, they don't seem to have any neighbors. So, um, I believe in the movie they talk about how far away people are, but I can't remember what they were saying. <laughs> right. At dawn, the couple awaken to find themselves tied to chairs in the living room, and this is near the end of the movie, with the intruders standing before them. Kristen attempts to plead with the strangers before demanding an explanation, to which Dollface replies, that's the one that wears the doll mask, in case uh, you're wondering. <laughs> right. Um, she replies, because you were home. The offenders unmask themselves to Kristen and James before taking turns stabbing them in the chest and abdomen. That part's pretty intense as well. Afterwards, they drive away in their truck and come across two young boys. The movie actually starts with these two young boys finding the scene. And and they call the cops, and that's kind of how the movie starts. And then it goes to the the two main characters. But um, they meet these two boys... um, apparently before they discover it, on bicycles distributing religious tracts. Dollface steps out of the truck and asks if she can have one of their tract cards. One of the boys asks her, are you a sinner? To which she responds, sometimes. The boy gives her one and the strangers drive away as pinup girl states, it'll be easier next time. The two boys then discover the bloody bodies in the house. And, yeah, that's also the end of the movie, so it kind of ends where it began. Creepy. Discovering the bodies, yeah. So, um... 
some some film critics, Kevin Whitmore noted, Wetmore noted the film's portrayal of violence as a reflection of its contemporary culture, writing, and remember, this is what, 2008, death is a random act in post-9-11 horror, the result of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, as the cliche goes. Unlike an 80s slasher horror, for example, where engaging in negative behavior such as drinking, doing drugs, having premarital sex are all forerunners to being killed by the killers, here, death is random and un unrelated to one's behavior definitely scarier that way i think yeah <laughs> like a random yeah, the whole like you're having sex so you're gonna die right it's kind of played out on those which yeah. is somehow more fun in a way you know it's like you kind of know the tropes and that how that's gonna yeah. play out you but, lock you know. yourself in the bathroom you're in the worst room in the house right and that's you know of course everyone does that which is funny the book i'm reading right now also happens to be like a home invasion slash slash slasher thing yeah weird it's been a weird week hmm. interesting um the horror show guide the ultimate fright fest of movies um mike mayo noted uh the author mike mayo noted the film's grim realism writing that the main characters could have wandered out of a gloomy ingmar bergman film ultimately branding the film as an example of naturalistic domestic horror akin to michael haneke's funny games um i don't know if you ever saw funny games that that director did an Austrian version, the original, and an American version. Hmm. And uh, I don't think I've seen that. Saw both of them. They're pretty good. Although those start out, these two boys show up at this like vacation house on a lake, and they kind of make friends with the uh, the people at the house first, and then things start to go shitty. So they don't just show up okay. i mean they do but they're very friendly at first and they kind of gain the trust of these people and then kind of turn it on them and right it, it gets intense pretty quick so it definitely moves slower than the uh, strangers but um strangers has also been noted by uh scholar philip simpson as highlighting the divide between the underprivileged and privileged classes not so sure about this one myself as well for its inversion of commonly held beliefs about violence in urban areas and pastoral ethics Quote, the strangers, as many horror films do, undermines the conventional notion of rural society as a simpler, crime-free place. One might call the narrative sensibility informing the strangers pastoral paranoia. I do like that. In, the, in that danger lurks among the rough folk of the country rather than the suburbs and cities. Of course, it may be that provincial violence is a result of contamination, or in other words, that the kind of stranger-upon-stranger violence typically associated with urban life metastasizes to the rural. A phenomenon noted by Lewis Worth, whoever that is. I don't know who Lewis Worth is. Um, oh, Dr. Worth? <laughs> right. Oh, yes, Dr. Worth. <clears throat> um, Brian Bertino says about writing the screenplay and his inspirations for them. Um, this is his own words. I was thinking about the tape murders and realizing that these detailed descriptions had painted a story of what it was like in the house with the victims, but none of the victims knew about the Manson family or why it was happening to them. So I got really fascinated with telling the victim's tale and not filling it in with an FBI profile and not filling it in with finding out that somebody's grandmother beat them and now they want to kill everybody. You read obituaries every day where someone is killed for a random reason. Yes, we may eventually find out why, but sometimes they don't. Brian Bertino on his... Oh, wait, never mind. So, yeah, I already told you about the inspirations. Um, the original screenplay was called The Faces, and it was only his third screenplay that he'd ever, uh, that he'd ever written. Obviously inspired by films from the 1970s. Um, Bertino stated he was very impressed with some of the theories circulating on the internet about the, quote, true events the movie is allegedly based on, but um, as I mentioned, he based it mainly on the Manson family murders and that event when he was a kid in his neighborhood. Um, I did, 
three movies that I could remember watching that were pretty good home invasion movies that uh, I would definitely call home invasion horror movies. Uh, Straw Dogs is one of them, which if you've never seen, uh, started a very young Dustin Hoffman. I think it came out in 71 or 72. Mm, yeah. But uh, these people, Dustin Hoffman and his wife, I can't remember who she was, famous herself. I don't know why I didn't put it in my notes, but... Uh, they move into this house and the folks working on the house, like remodeling it for them, uh, end up breaking into the house, raping the wife, kind of taking over things. And it's uh, pretty intense, like definitely was uh, criticized and uh, and much loved by Peckin, Sam Peckinpah fans, uh, the director. He um, definitely went all out. It's a pretty intense movie, especially the rape scene, which has been criticized because it does start to seem like the wife begins to quote unquote enjoy it towards the end of the rape and it's uh yeah it's definitely huh. interesting if you can look past some of the 1971 qualities of it <laughs> yeah uh susan george yeah there you go susan george who actually that was i was thinking it was someone else but i guess my brain was not thinking right um more recent movie uh i don't know if you saw this one you are next did you see you're next Mm-mm. That one, uh, the same guy no. that redid Blair Witch uh, back in 2015, Adam Wingard, did You Are Next back in 2011. And it's uh, a couple goes to stay at their family's house, but the whole family's there. It's like a family reunion. And during dinner, someone gets shot with an arrow through the window. They look out the window, there's people in masks, and they start attacking the whole damn family. Now, this one turns into something different than just a home invasion movie. Like, there's actually a more of a purpose to what the people are doing but yeah so pretty crazy you should check that one out you're next it's always good to like when you're living alone and watch those at <laughs> midnight dude watching because i'm watching my parents house out in uh, out in the country and i watched the visitors it was uh yeah it was dark out and, or the strangers or i'm sorry the visitors <laughs> the strange visitors is creepy too the strangers um, and then Don't Breathe, which recently came out. Oh, that with the one blind guy, yeah. Kind of turns the whole home invasion on its head, though, because those that break in actually get, you know, get what's coming to another them. Another spoiler alert. Yeah, another spoiler alert. I'm not giving too much away, because there's another twist to that one that I'm not going to talk about. But uh, He's really blind and deaf. <laughs> but <laughs> but he's yeah, good at pinball. If you haven't seen Don't Breathe, definitely go see Don't Breathe. Don't go see it. I guess you can't yeah, go see it anymore. I don't know if they're going to have it in theaters. Yeah. There's a sequel to Don't Breathe, too. I haven't seen the sequel. I don't think I need to. It's the opener for the new Taylor Swift movie. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Uh, Liv Tyler talking about the script. Um, She actually hadn't worked in several years because she had had a kid and she was just being a mom. And this was her first movie back after being uh, on a hiatus for a while. And at that time, she had gotten pretty popular. and. You know, she had been in uh, the Lord of the Rings movies. So I yeah. imagine you need a break after all that. Well, and making I'm all that sure, money. I'm sure you're probably not hurting for a paycheck <laughs> right, after exactly. that either. Um, she says, I especially like Brian's way of saying a lot, but not saying everything. Often in movies, it's all spelled out for you, and the dialogue is very explanatory. But Brian doesn't write like that. He writes how normal people communicate with questions lingering. I knew it would be interest, interesting to act like that. Um, Speedman, James Speedman, the guy who played her husband, said, quote, the audience actually gets time to breathe with the characters before things get scary as hell. That got me interested from the first page. I mean, you get to breathe for 15 minutes. But Every yeah, one of them's like that. Right, yeah. I mean, but, you know, some of them, like you were saying, they're really slow to start out, and then they're yeah. really good, but it's like it's kind of yeah, a but slow everyone, build. I, I can't think of any of them that just immediately get into, like, right. butchering. Even, you know, I guess on Friday this one, 13th, 7, still, it, like, you know, Right. It still took 10, 20 minutes <laughs> to get maybe going. maybe what he's talking about here is you have the whole drama of where he's proposed to uh, this girl that he's been with forever, and she 
rejects him and so they're all depressed and they're trying to get over that and so you have this storyline going and then it gets interrupted by the actual movie right (laughs) and so you but you never get back to that really (laughs) i think as they're getting getting ready to get murdered she might actually show him that she put the ring on that she was saying yeah i'll marry you because now we're gonna die so of course i'll say say, yeah yeah i don't want to go to hell and live in sin so that part i'm like hey you could have left that out um Let's see. In casting the three masked intruders, Bertino chose Australian fashion model Gemma. Is it Gemma or Gemma? Gemma or Gemma Ward for the part of Dollface, feeling she had the exact, quote, look he had imagined. Which I'm like, hmm, interesting. Um, let's see. Ward was officially cast in the film. Blah, 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 blah. You don't care about that. Um, she also read uh, Vincent Bugliosi's Helter Skelter for inspiration when preparing for the movie. That's a, a book about uh, the Manson family murders. Right. Yeah. Um, Kip Weeks was the guy. He was um, played the character of Man in the Mask, and uh, Laura Margolis played uh, Pinup Girl. In retrospect, Bertino said he chose the three actors based on their abilities to convey their characters, in spite of the fact their faces remain unseen on screen. I will say they're scary as hell, but I think the masks mostly do that for me. Although yeah. they move kind of weird too. I mean, they're kind of stiff. Like they seem like they're in control the whole time too, though. Like well, their in body control. language is definitely like with confidence and I'm going to kill you kind of confidence. Yeah. Well, that's true. Um, so yeah, I'm not going to go over, I was going to go over more of that, but I think I've talked enough. Um, I will say the masks that he had in the movies, uh, he did go and pick them up at like a, like just a regular store, like a dollar tree or whatever, because he wanted the mask to look like something that he had picked up. Yeah, they would just go by the store on their way to go. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's go kill some people. Yeah, they didn't have to right. go with those point blank president masks right. or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So he did. Ronald that. Reagan's <laughs> murdering me. Ah, <laughs> which would be scary as hell. Actually, I mean, those president masks yeah. are kind of creepy. The, the big shit eating grins on them, well, especially stuff. with uh, what's his face in the the first Point Break, uh, Nixon, Keanu Reeves. The old uh, not Keanu Reeves. Why can't I think of a. Uh, Patrick, Patrick, Swayze? Patrick Swayze, yeah, he looks creepy as hell in his mask. Like his eyes are scary through those Who holes. Is he? is he Richard Nixon? I think it? he might have been wearing the yeah. Richard Nixon one. Yeah. Anyways, anyways, yeah. Not those kind of masks. They're more like the old like. Well, one of them's just like a, like a rubber burlap band sack. A, yeah. yeah, but like yeah, they're sounding like those old like seventies. Uh, you buy them in a kit, right? Like plastic, yeah, crumbly plastic. Yeah, yeah. for sure. That's exactly what they look like. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty creepy. They're very creepy. (laughs) Um, Movie reception. Uh, Currently on Rotten Tomatoes, um, the film holds an approval rating of 48% based on 165 reviews. i got to disagree with that. The average uh, audience rating... Mine only had a 67%, I didn't tell you. Really? Yeah, so I mean... It was better than that, I thought, but whatever. Half the time they give them, it's wrong. And I mean, things like Rotten Tomatoes, that's based on, you know, aggregate scores, So, which is funny that that had that... That many negative reviews. To yeah, but there's 48%. always haters. Yeah, you know, especially with horror movies. Yeah, like it's oh, easy yeah. to talk shit. But uh, with an average rating of um, the audience rating was five point one out of ten, which is still like fifty percent. Well, yeah. yeah. The website's critical consensus reads: "Quote: The Strangers has a handful of genuinely scary moments, but they're not enough to elevate the end results above standard slasher fare." It's like, eh, I disagree. But fair enough. Unfavorable reviews include Roger Ebert of the uh, Chicago Sun-Times, who gave the film one and a half stars out of four, because he's a jerk, or was a jerk, saying, and he wasn't, 
Quote, the movie deserves more stars for its bottom line craft, but all the craft in the world can't redeem its story. Bob Mandello of NPR said the film was a sadistic, unmotivated home invasion flick. I mean, come on. It was better than unmotivated. Stephen Ray of the Philadelphia Inquirer noted that, quote, no one is getting at anything in The Strangers except the cheapest, ugliest kind of sadistic titillation. I disagree there, too, because there's very little blood in the movie. Even when they're getting stabbed at the end, you don't see it, really. So Yeah, it's the like, whole uh, mind, the whole right. thought of it. So, like, cheap and ugly... There's some jump scares, but it's not cheap and ugly, I don't think. Like, did you watch the movie, dude? <laughs> you know? I'm like, this is what you thought it was going to be when you went in, I think. And right. that's what it stayed for you. But Elizabeth Weitzman of the New York Daily News compared the film to 2007's Vacancy, which was not very good in my opinion, a comparison which does strangers no favors. Vacancy director Nimrod Antal gave us a pair of heroes who fought it like hell to survive. Is that how you say that name? I doubt it. It has to be. Is it N-I-M-R-O-D? It is. There is an accent over the O, so it could be Nimrod. It's Nimrod. It's going to be Nimrod. Yeah. Um, But in Vacancy, they fought like hell to survive, becoming closer and stronger in the effort. Disagree. Bertino's undeveloped protagonists are colossally stupid and frustratingly passive. I will say they're a little bit passive colossally stupid again i'm not sure that anybody knows exactly how they would react in such a situation so is it stupid i was there shit in pants if not then it's not realistic (laughs) right yeah so stephen hunter of the washington post panned the film calling it a fraud from start to finish like come on mick lasalle of the san francisco chronicle said the film quote uses cinema to ends that are objectionable and vile like come on but admitted that quote it does well with more than usual skills so it's like well so you're at least admitting he did it with skill like but isn't that what you're supposed to be critiquing it on anyway i'm trying to figure out how you get that job yeah right we need you to watch movies for a living well and these guys yeah i mean you know they've probably earned where they are but then they say stupid shit. well i don't know when you read half their reviews have they (laughs) right well they they go too much by the book i think and not like did you watch the movie and enjoy this isn't done like uh hitchcock did it right like yeah well hitchcock's different than he wasn't trying to do it I like mean, that either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they make it seem like everything has to be one of these three movies. <laughs> exactly. It's not It's a Wonderful Life. It's not uh, <laughs> well, you know, Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane yeah. is not The Godfather. Okay, sure. But you know that there's other movies that exist. Pootie Indeed. Tang exists. I've slept through The Godfather every time I've tried to watch it. Yeah, I admit it. I never finished it. <laughs> but hey. Well, you can't even watch the whole trilogy. Anyways. Yes, anyway. Um Wesley Morris of the Boston Globe said of the director, Bertino has the pretensions of an artist and the indelicacy of a hack. He tries to get under our skin with a pile driver. Kind they make it sound like he, he <laughs> right. produced The Room. Yeah. Yeah, and so this one also gets me. Uh, Stephen Witte of the Star Ledger said, Unfolding with an almost startling lack of self-awareness, young filmmaker Brian Bertino's debut is such a careful, straight-faced knockoff of 70s exploitation films that it plays like a parody. And it's like, nah, I don't think it does. Like, and what nah. films are you talking about exactly? Yeah, I don't the, think of that one as like a parody. The, so, I'd yeah. like to read these guys' reviews on like, like 
Santa's sleigh, S L A Y, or like, <laughs> right. you know, like Thanksgiving, exactly. or th- those kind of yeah. Or even uh, you brought up Tucker and Dale. Like, what would they think of something like right. that? Would they actually like it? Yeah, you know, or would they, they be like, "This is just pretentious and silly and right. dumb"? It's like, yeah, that's kind of the whole point, right? It's right. It's doing it on purpose, which they know this, and they still choose to like say shitty things. It's like you guys know what's going on here. Um, amongst the positive reviews, though, because we got to give some positive reviews. Um, New York Times, there you go, said The Strangers is suspenseful, suspenseful, <laughs> suspenseful, and highly effective, and smartly maintains its commitment to tingling creepiness over bludgeoning horror. Like, right, yeah. exactly. Michael Rechstaffen of The Hollywood Reporter called the film a creepily atmospheric psychological thriller with a death grip on the psychological aspect. That sounds like the kind of guy you would have to listen to his opinion. <laughs> right. Michael Rechstaffer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yes, sir. <laughs> James Berardinelli of Real Views gave the film three out of four stars, saying, This is one of those rare horror movies that concentrates on, <clears throat> excuse me, on suspense and terror rather than on gore and a high body count. Like, yep. Scott Tobias of the AV Club said that as an exercise in controlled mayhem, horror movies don't get much scarier. And I would agree with that as well. Like, it's a. Them, yeah. them fighting for their survival is pretty intense yeah, throughout the creepiness the of it. Like, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then again, just like Jason in Friday the 13th, there are people in masks chasing you, and no matter what you do, they seem to catch you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Michael <laughs> Myers, yeah, exactly. Leatherface. Like, and so The Strangers does kind of take on that slasher thing, but it, it remains grounded, I think, and you know, yeah. it's more realistic. But uh, So anyway, I won't do more on the feedback. Let me get on. I said I was going to talk a little bit about the... the uh, the things that it was based on. So let me move on a little bit. I think I'm taking too much time here. We uh, do all know about the Tate murders. Um, do you know about the Tate murders? Yeah. How they unfolded? Um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> leave it up to the listener to go and, you know, if you don't know about it, then go ahead and feel free to go look it up. But I feel like it's been covered enough. Oh, yeah. You know, Charles like, Manson. Yeah, the Manson murders. Like, definitely was a home invasion. Uh, definitely was quite terrifying for <clears throat> those involved. Well, no one survived, but at least not that I, I don't think so after reading over that. But anyway, go ahead and read that. But the Caddy Cabin murders, I won't read a whole lot about that either because there you get into a whole lot. It's an unsolved murder still happened back in 1981, but um, they still don't know who did it. But more recently, there's been uh, a lot of controversy over people who believe they know who did it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to get into any of that because it'll take forever. Okay. But um, the Ketty Cabin murders, Mm -hmm. they're an unsolved quadruple homicide that occurred over the night of April 11th and 12th. 12th. Good Lord. What's wrong with me? 1981 in Ketty, California, United States. (laughs) Thank you, Wikipedia. The victims were Glenna Susan Sue Sharp, um, her daughter Tina, her son John, and uh, John's friend Dana Hall. The murders took place in house number 28 of the Ketty Resort. The bodies of Wingate and Sue and John Sharp were found on the morning of April 12th by Sue's 14-year-old daughter Sheila, who had been sleeping at a friend's house. Sue's two younger sons, Rick and Greg, as well as their friend Justin Smart, were also in the house but were unharmed. Tina was missing from the scene. Tina remained a missing person until April 1984, so for three years. When her skull and several other bones were recovered at Camp 18, California, near Feather Falls in Butte County. Multiple leads and suspects were examined in the intervening years, but no charges were filed. Several new leads were announced in the 21st century, including the discovery of a hammer in a pond on, uh, in 2016 and the discovery of new DNA evidence. So, hmm. from what I read, even 
like it's still like they haven't been able to pin it on anybody even with all of this new evidence and stuff but uh apparently from what the evidence showed like someone broke into this cabin uh specifically murdered some people left others mysteriously alive i mean they were children but they killed other children right. and then uh wow. disappeared into the night and no one knows what happened like yeah and there's lots of eyewitness accounts of what was going on that night around the house and everything and people had heard some strange things but yeah all of these things happened and no one had any idea and still don't really amazing though this one seems like it would probably be somebody they knew at least in my opinion but because the statistics that i looked into said that normally these sorts of things are done by people that you know so home invasion statistics are kind of hard to find because they're lumped in with burglary right but stranger danger is not really a thing right essentially yeah the statistics will say well yeah it happens but it doesn't that goes across the board for almost all crime pretty much yeah and um did find out uh well let me just read over some of these uh this was from the um u.s department of justice bureau of justice statistics so an estimated 3.7 million household burglaries occurred each year on average from 2003 to 2007 so that was during the time that actually the strangers was supposed to take place so in about 28 percent of these burglaries a household member was present during the burglary in seven percent of all household burglaries a household member experienced some form of violent victimization so seven percent and it has gotten lower since then like a lot lower since then and i'll read some of those statistics in a little bit so crime rates have gone down dramatically (laughs) at least as far as burglaries and home invasions are concerned and home invasion includes violent ones non-violent ones you know burglaries like successful ones whatever like so it's all gone down yeah you know um see estimates of burglary are well i don't need that because i just told you the definition um <clears throat> simple assault was the most common form of violence when a resident was home and violence occurred that was 15 percent of the time robbery and rape which rape was three percent were less likely to occur when a household member was present and violence occurred so well that's weird weirdly stated actually moving on though offenders were known to their victims in 65 percent of violent burglaries offenders were strangers in 28 percent so very unlikely that it's going to be a stranger and these percentages are based on lower numbers anyway because this just doesn't really happen as much as one would think that it does um and uh serious injury accounted for nine percent and minor injury accounted for 36 percent of injuries sustained by household members who were home and experienced violence during a completed burglary so again all these statistics are pretty low um but for some more um recent statistics this is from forbes i was having trouble not finding statistics from like insurance websites and stuff on like oh, yeah, home burglaries yeah. and all that right yeah. um, but these were more uh these i think are up through 2021 i can't find that date because i didn't take good notes on on these things um but uh property no 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 on average over 1 million home burglaries happen annually in the u.s so it was 3.7 million uh between uh 2003 and 2007 so now up to 2021 it's dropped to you know over 1 million is what it says so you would think if it was over 2 million they would say that right yeah (laughs) so it has dropped dramatically property crimes are the most common type of crime in the u.s according to the department of justice 1.7 million home burglaries took place in 2017 25 percent of those took place during the day um 
thieves often carry out those home aversion, home invasions during the day because, well, people aren't home. Like, between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. are the most common times for <laughs> right. home invasions. So, again, watch the strangers. Don't be scared. On average, each break-in lasts 8 to 10 minutes. Not all night long. Um, this is actually interesting. Well, and most people aren't coming to butcher you. They just want your TV. <laughs> right. You know? Like... <laughs> Because 737294919165 dollars worth of property was stolen from homes in 2021. That's just what's recorded. <laughs> and that's just what's recorded. Wow. Right? Wow. $737 billion. <laughs> And that's like bigger than like 50 countries combined GDP. <laughs> right. That's insane. So it's like, wow, there's not a whole lot of home invasion going on. But when they do, buddy, they really are stealing some shit. Yeah. <laughs> so miscellaneous items were the most popular among thieves, apparently, followed closely by consumable goods, vehicles, and money. So I guess the vehicles are probably... Well, and right, there's really probably a, a big number of that that's like, yeah, they stole my brand new 75-inch TV. Because you're probably getting these numbers from insurance uh, Yeah, like, what are you going to tell them? You had, like, an old 32-inch <laughs> tube television? No, I had to right. just bought a flat-panel television. Exactly. Um, but... Burglary burglary rates have steadily de- ugh, have been steadily declining for several decades. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> the highest rates. Uh, actually, never mind. Um, for the past several decades, property crime rates, including burglaries, have steadily declined. The current burglary burglary rate, including cases of forced entry, is seventy five percent less than it was in the nineteen eighties. Seventy five percent less. <laughs> That is insane to me. Be very scared. Yes, be very scared, though. But a lot of that is due to um, burglar alarms becoming a bigger thing. Yeah. Big. They say, which was a funny statistic, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something like 65% of homes have burglary alarm systems. And I'm like, really? That seemed high to me. I mean, that's not a I bad guess thing. I guess maybe they just, just consider, like, ring maybe the doorbells and yeah, stuff. Yeah, because this is a point. much more recent article than any of the others I could find. But uh, Right. But, yeah, that seemed pretty high to me. I was like, oh, good people. That surprises me. I mean, how many people actually use them when they have them installed? But, sure. Um, in 2021, although burglary rates receded throughout the U.S. as a whole, southern, central, and southern states reported the highest rates per capita. Um, we could talk politics if you want, but we, we won't. We'll save that for a state episode when yeah. we finally get Alabama. Right. Still got it for you, Alabama. Averaging 441.7 per 100,000 residents in those uh, highest rates per capita. New Mexico had the most occurrences at nearly 649, while New Hampshire enjoyed the lowest rate of just over 103 per 100,000. Hey, everybody people. in New Hampshire doesn't give a fuck. Guess who number two on the list is? Virginia. Though. Yep. We're the second least... <laughs> their second lowest rate of such crimes. Oh. Yeah. And I will, uh, oh no, I don't have that one in front of me. So yeah, go Virginia. Yeah, and that's um, that's about all I had for all of that, I think. Um, okay. I, once I, st- I really wanted to do that movie, so I stuck with it and just kind of talked about the movie more than I did the things Man, it was based fine. on. But, uh, but I thought it was, you know, home invasions scare the crap out of me. But yeah, it was kind sure. of more comforting to look at some of the statistics <clears throat> and be like, you yeah. know what, probably isn't going to happen. Look, it, if it happens to you, and I'll say, like, if 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 random people come, it's just it's your destiny. To, and I've had some experiences with random people, whether it be in my home or in others, whether it be involving drinking or not, um, in town more so than I have out in the country. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, plus like, certain places when you go out in the country, you probably have a lot more chance of like being met with a right the barrel of a shotgun. And most or people. You know? 
most people are going to realize that. You know, and most it's people. more noticeable when you like drive down somebody's two mile long driveway right. when you don't belong. Yeah. Like. Now this one, I mean, the way that they showed up, like these people, I don't know. She knocked on the door and there was no car involved. Like they didn't hear yeah, anyone like, pull up. Like that would they, be weird. Like, kind of like the Tate murders. They parked at the bottom of the hill and walked up into the neighborhood and just yeah. walked right into the house and you know started terrorizing. <laughs> yeah. So people, and at that time, who knew? Who the hell knew who the Manson family was anyway? And some believe that the FBI might have been putting them up to it or allowing it to happen for other reasons anyway. That there might have been That's some a whole sort other. of yeah, there were some sort of uh, LSD experiments going on that uh, that they were letting things happen and were quite aware of how dangerous the Manson family was, but chose to do nothing. So anyway, go huh. and, go and look that up. Yeah. Wow! Wow! So uh, the Strangers and the Stanford Prison Experiment. Yeah. Two movies that are, I guess, kind of grounded back in the sixties and seventies. Yeah, and based on. Or loosely based, or like inspired by there you go, actual inspired events. By. Yeah, although yours, uh, mine was basically the entire adventure. What but you, you can go saying, online and find the actual yeah, one. So and that one's very interesting. I mean, they're both great movies. Stanford Prison Experiment. I, I thought it. I'll, I'd put it under horror because it turns into a horror show. Really, it's definitely yeah, a I mean, shit show yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, um, wow. Uh, and like we said, today's Friday the Thirteenth. And you asked earlier, the uh, next Friday the Thirteenth is September. Uh, 2004, 2024. Oh, wow. So that's and a ways. also next December will be a Friday the 13th. There's only two next year, and they're in September and December. So Wow. So not but, so many. But you can't go more than 14 months without having one. So enjoy your holiday and your spooky weekend. Yeah, because we're going to go, what, 11 months without having one. Yep, that's right. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe, right. We'll, maybe we'll remember this conversation then. Ooh. Um, Ooh, we'll see. Between about, uh, now and then, though, go on organdonor.gov. Get rid of your eyeballs. And give them up. And your fingernails, too, right? You donate yeah, those? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Maybe you can just use your skin to make a mask for somebody right. to come into your house or something. Yeah. We haven't gotten an email from our handsome vet friend in a while. Why don't you? Yeah, let I mean, us know. We know you can't donate your fingernails, but tell us something else interesting. It's average looking. Remember that. <laughs> Anyways. It does have a beautiful Subaru, though. Ah, <laughs> there you go. You get some credit for that. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate you guys, and we'll see you on the next one. Bye.